0: This is Bold Dominion, an explainer for state politics in a changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. I want you to think back to last November. November 3rd to be exact. If you're like me, you were watching the presidential election results like a hawk, counting electoral college votes for Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. You could be forgiven if you didn't pay as close attention to a Virginia constitutional amendment. It passed and it's gonna have a big impact on how our lawmakers represent Virginia districts in Richmond and in Washington. On the 2020 ballot, Virginia question one was the redistricting commission amendment. The short version, it changes how Virginia draws its political district lines. In the past, whatever party held majorities in the Virginia General Assembly approved pretty much whatever district maps it wanted to. When the two major parties actually worked together sometimes, this wasn't the worst idea. But in recent decades, parties have used district maps as a political weapon to maintain their power. It's a tool called gerrymandering. If you're making a map, you can pack a ton of, say, Democratic voters into a small number of districts. That leaves a bunch of other districts that are just comfortably safe for Republicans. Say, 55% Republican vote in a normal year. That keeps the majority in Republican hands, even if statewide there were more Democratic votes overall. So the process is changing. Now Virginia has a 16-member redistricting commission. It's composed of eight legislators and eight informed citizens. And it's split evenly between Republicans and Democrats. Its task is to redraw district maps for the state of Virginia. On this episode of Bold Dominion, we find out how it's going. We also look into the history of redistricting in Virginia, how Amendment 1 came to fruition, and what's needed next. So every 10 years, the Constitution of Virginia, along with the Constitution of the United States, declares that all states must redraw voter district maps to reflect changes in where people actually live. For most states, this process occurs on even-numbered years. Those states will need to present their new maps before the 2022 elections. But New Jersey and Virginia are the only two exceptions. We hold state elections on odd-numbered years, which means we're due for new maps come 2021 House elections. But there's a problem. Due to bungling of the Trump administration, plus challenges from COVID-19, the census results aren't due until mid-August. That puts the new redistricting commission behind schedule.
1: It, it, it's not a question of ambiguity. Article 2, Section 6 says we must run in new districts in November 2021, but we're not doing it. But the Constitution says we're required to do it. So our entire House of Delegates elections are unconstitutional, they're illegal. They violate the Constitution.
0: That's Mark Levine, a member of the Virginia House of Delegates who represents parts of Northern Virginia. We'll hear more from him later in the show. He's got a lot of concerns about how this is all unfolding and whether the amendment goes far enough. But first, let's talk about why the redistricting process is important in the first place. Like many other states, Virginia has a long history of gerrymandering. Proponents of the amendment hope to combat that with the installation of a new redistricting commission. So, Will it work? Bold Dominion producer Kim Salak sat down with Brian Cannon. He's the director of campaigns for the Institute for Political Innovation, and he served as executive director of One Virginia 2021, the nonprofit that led the Vote Yes campaign for the Redistricting Commission Amendment.
2: Why did your organization work for a redistricting reform amendment?
3: There's some structural, clear problems in our democracy and how it functions. And uh, one of the clearest has for a long time uh, been called out as as gerrymandering, where politicians have a system where they get to, once a decade, based on the new census data, draw maps that will virtually ensure their reelection, And they do this in a way that carves up our communities and our neighborhoods and makes it really hard for... um, you know, a fair marketplace of ideas to exist in our politics because the district was literally designed for the incumbent politician to win re-election.
2: Right. So then this is a very important process and issue to tackle. So who was part of your coalition and why do you think they were important to include in this conversation?
3: Uh, Perhaps some of our biggest supporters in state were the League of Women Voters, which has been around for over 100 years, uh, fighting for women's suffrage and, and voting rights for all. Uh, the AARP of Virginia was a big ally. Um, the League of Conservation Voters was also a big ally. Um, and then we really built up a, a network of volunteers and uh, redistricting experts and advocates around the Commonwealth because, uh, you know, we had this unique situation of. We're for this reform, regardless of who's in power, and you know, hitching your wagon too closely to one, you know, one group or another doesn't always work out um, in the long run. Uh, so, so we were very careful about that, but wanting to build up our own kind of infrastructure, and and we did, and and that made a big difference to our victory.
2: Who actually writes the specific language of a proposed amendment?
3: Yeah, so um, we pulled together. Uh, one Virginia did, uh, a, a group of, of constitutional and redistricting experts to help us write uh, what we thought was kind of a, a gold standard proposal, like a benchmark for how Virginia could do this best. Um, the legislators ultimately write the, the amendments or are ultimately responsible for them, their policy staffs or any groups they work with, like us, um, and the Department of Legislative Services at Virginia. We have an awesome, very nonpartisan, very expert, high-quality um, set of attorneys and and drafters that draft not only constitutional amendments, but all the bills and, and legislation you see in Virginia's General Assembly. And they ended up, they were the writers of it per se. But the framework comes from the legislatures, uh, legislators and, and advocacy groups.
2: So then how did conversations go with lawmakers when you were pushing this out?
3: Yeah. So if you're a legislator in the majority party, and I was asking you to pass an amendment that would help guarantee fair districts in Virginia, I'm asking you to give up power. Now, I'm asking you to do it for all the right reasons, right? Because our democracy needs, you know, continual improvement and, you know, we've got to make this vote smatter. and, And there are plenty of legislators on both sides of the aisle that were receptive to that idea when they were in the majority. And I think the problem we face in democracy reform in general that when you have to go through a state legislature is you're Asking the people to change the people who benefited the most directly from the system to change the system that brought them there. So whether you're talking about campaign finance reform or redistricting or open primaries or ranked choice voting, whatever it is, you know, those people are, are and the legislators are biased to think that whatever system elected them was the best and most fair system ever created because it chose them. So asking them to the change was was tough
2: where do you see differences in how you would converse with a lawmaker versus how you would converse with an average voter um, throughout this process?
3: The key to talking to legislators is to have enough power to have them have to listen to you, right? And so building up that Those conversations about showing, hey, this is the current system. Both sides have abused it. Here's a clear way to fix it that would be much better. And there's some good allies on both sides that are willing to do it. We just need a couple more allies to get it over. That's a compelling message to the average citizen uh, to be engaged. They intuitively know what's up and they also know when to call BS on legislators who try to say, oh, well, there's this reason or that reason we can't. So I think that's an important prerequisite for having the conversation with the legislator, because the legislator is then going to want to know, okay, well, am I going to lose in a primary because of this or am I going to get hit on this if I if I oppose it or if I support it? Which way which way is the most painful? Um, And and the other thing they want to know is they want to know that their leadership and their committee structure is going to support it. Right. Like, how are you going to get this through committee Um, and how are you going to get this out on the floor? It's a more nuanced insider baseball conversation with legislators, but I don't think you need to pull punches on the policy discussion with citizens.
2: What were the challenges on the grassroots organizing side?
3: So COVID hit, right? This The, the amendment passes the legislature in early March and, and a week later, everything is, is shut down and, and we weren't really sure how to campaign in a pandemic. Nobody was. But we were fortunate that we had built up over over the last the prior five years just an army of of supporters um, and and redistricting activists leaders around the state that knew the issue um, could could go in depth on policy but could also talk politics um, but also could give you the elevator pitch if that's all you had time for. And they were really good on social media. Um, they had already built up a network of, of supporters in their districts that they knew that, that were you know, supportive of this. And we had really good allies. But It was a traditional campaign in terms of the, the levers we pulled, but it was uh, non traditional in terms of like when we pulled them and how we did it.
2: So you talk about how this amendment kind of had a lot of iterations getting to this final point. So what did the amendment proposal originally look like when you first started out?
3: So I think the way folks should evaluate any redistricting reform proposal is in three buckets. The first is who draws the maps, right, with an ideal of independent, even mix of, you know, citizens who are super qualified and not elected. Then there's the how. What are you prioritizing? Are you prioritizing communities of interest? Are you prioritizing city and county lines, respecting those? Um, you know, how do you treat rivers and how do you treat the Chesapeake Bay, which makes things a little awkward in redistricting, even if you're trying your best to do it right. What's the recipe you follow for that? So it's the the how you do it. And then the last part is the transparency element. And that's a check on just all the others. And I think transparency goes a long way. I think sunlight is very important in this, probably underrated. Um, the Area where we made the compromise to get it through the legislature was on the first bucket, was the who draws it. So um, we had to make a compromise there. Instead of an all-citizens commission, it was a half-citizen, half-legislator commission, evenly balanced by parties. And the trick to it all, or the the way that makes it work, which made us comfortable with it, to advocate for it, was to pass a map, you didn't just need a simple majority. You needed a supermajority to pass a map. It, it stru- structurally eliminates partisan gerrymandering that way, because you've got to get buy-in from Republicans and buy-in from Democrats. And if you don't, it'll end up going to the courts. And quite frankly, neither side wants that to happen.
2: So then what was something you weren't willing to compromise on?
3: The first part is it's got to end partisan gerrymandering. The second part is we have to make it illegal to racially gerrymander Virginia's districts going forward. And what we felt was very important was given the trajectory of what's happening with the Voting Rights Act in, in federal courts, and the U.S. Supreme Court's refusal to tackle partisan gerrymandering, blatant partisan gerrymandering, um, their, their reluctance to really rule effectively on, on racial gerrymandering at a, at a convincing level and their gutting of the Voting Rights Act and a lot of other ways that are important. Um, all of that combines to we can't trust the federal courts to protect minority voting rights when it comes to redistricting. Uh, and Virginia should do take it upon itself to do that. And we did. So we put the federal voting rights requirements for for protecting minority communities, racial, ethnic or ra- racial and uh, ethnic communities into the state constitution. So now it's a standalone Virginia action. And then the last part was the transparency piece uh, to get it. And that's that's just super important to make sure that all the above functions well. Mm-hmm.
2: So I want to ask about someone who was a strong advocate for ending g- gerrymandering, but who later came out against the amendment. In August 2020, Linda Periello wrote about how she had worked for this amendment for eight years, but it became too watered down in the legislative process to the point that she felt she couldn't support it. So I guess what is your your response or your thoughts about that specific position?
3: I have a lot of respect for Linda, uh, but we disagree on this. And I, I think the letting legislators, that, that compromise we had to make to get it on the ballot – um, was letting legislators have half the seats on the commission, and that was just too much for her. And principally, I totally understand that. But from a pragmatic approach of of what would we have done without this, Like it, it was either this amendment or nothing. There was no other amendment. And even the Democrats in the House who flipped on us, who say they were for redistricting reform, and then they they voted for it when they were in the minority, and then they flipped – they didn't even come up with a, an alternative plan. It wouldn't have been an amendment, but they didn't even have a real viable plan that could even get out of their own body, let alone pass the Senate and get the governor's signature. So they, they weren't serious about an alternative. And in that world, the, the pragmatic world in which we live here. I I would I agree with Linda. I don't want to have legislators drawing the maps, but I'd certainly rather have the minority voting protections, the citizens at the table, and the transparency guaranteed by our state constitution in perpetuity, um, because I don't trust the Democrats in charge not to gerrymander.
2: Mm-hmm. So, well, the amendment passed. <laughs> so the new redistricting commission is doing its work this year. So how do you think that's going?
3: There's a couple takeaways I have. First of all, um, they had to put this commission together very quickly, right? It was because it was passed in November and it got they started taking applications in December. Um, and people didn't know how to, you know, they, they didn't know what it would look like. There was a lot of question marks about just kind of administering things like where do you apply to? Um, that will be sorted out for the next time. So credit to the Department of Legislative Services who was staffing this up that they really got it off the ground. There's, of course, a really big curveball with the delay in the census data, which has nothing to do with Virginia's, That um, has a lot more to do with D.C.'s incompetence, um, but but the census delay has actually been a, a silver lining because it's given the commission more time to get up and running than to have some public hearings. And just the fact that you can log online and you can watch everything they're doing is just such an improvement over our prior process. Um, I'm really proud of what we created. I'm really proud of it. But we still got to see the maps. Um, I, I feel good about where we are right now, um, but I but I recognize the jury's still out a little bit because we, we need maps.
2: We talked about how this can be considered a partial victory in trying to get this out and fighting for more later. So either way, how can Virginia make the redistricting process better?
3: Um, Now we're going to have politicians elected under these new maps, under this new system, and I think, therefore, they will see that having citizen commissioners drawing maps, um, like they are in this process, even though they're not drawing them by themselves, but I think that that makes it less scary. Um, I think they'll see, like, the really quality people that are on this commission, uh, the the the, the, integ- the the way they've served with integrity, um, the participation and all that. And they won't be as scared of fair districts. We'll see going forward. But the, the, the number one thing to do to improve this is get the legislators completely out of the room uh, on the map drawing process. And I hope they can do that next.
2: What map would you consider a sign of progress that this commission is working?
3: Sure. I think there's a couple ways to look at it. One of the places I'm looking at is... Um, Lynchburg Virginia, um, but it 's carved up seven ways to Sunday, and it has been repeatedly throughout the years um, there 's an argument to be made that Lynchburg should be kept whole or maybe split logically one way um, but I think it''s, it's the it 's Lynchburg and a lot of other small to mid sized cities and towns in Virginia that are too often used as political pawns to be diced up for um for redistricting. So I, I'm watching that to see can we keep Lynchburg whole or if we have to divide it, which is fine. Uh is it divided in some sort of logical manner? Because right now the districts go through a former delegate right around a former delegate's house to ensure that she doesn't run again. Um like it's it's pretty blatant. So, you know, that's one of the things I'm looking for. I think the other thing for average citizens is just the eyeball test look at these districts. Now, they're a bunch of squiggly, you know, Rorschach looking districts. That's the fact that there aren't doesn't mean there's not gerrymandering, but the absence of it certainly means that it might be a a reasonably fair map. The other thing that I'm looking for is how do these maps keep cities, counties and towns together? Um, Because at some point, if you're trying to keep a community of interest together, um, you know, you choose the community you live in, you, you, you know, vote your kids go to school there, you vote for mayor or whatever it is, you're engaged in that community as a as a sub-political um organization in, in a lot of ways, right? So um so keeping those together for lack of a better proxy, those are pretty decent, I guess, proxies for um for communities, um, would be, would be localities. Um, and then the last thing I'm looking for, and 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 perhaps the most important is uh, Virginia's legislature has taken huge strides on reflecting the diversity of our commonwealth um, and in in large part thanks to just a, a big blue wave in 2017 but also very significantly because the House of Delegates and the and congressional districts were redrawn this past decade by courts um, and they've redrawn it into fair districts. I want to make sure that the the maps we have going forward will continue to reflect and hopefully improve on reflecting the diversity of the Commonwealth.
0: Brian Cannon
3: is the director of campaigns for the Institute for Political Innovation.
0: Before that, he led the Vote Yes campaign as the executive director of One Virginia 2021. In a moment, we'll hear from a Virginia lawmaker that has some criticisms of the redistricting process so far. Stay with us through the short break. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. Have a friend who's trying to learn about state politics? Well, tell them about this show and then subscribe. You can find us in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are served up. Hey, while you're there, go ahead and leave us a five-star review. We love those. Bold Dominion is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. Check out all the podcasts from the collective. From science to history to music to community affairs, we amplify the voices of people in our community and help them tell stories that matter. You can listen and subscribe at virginiaaudio.org. Earlier in this episode, we talked with Brian Cannon, who led the Vote Yes campaign for the Redistricting Commission Amendment. He sees the passing of the amendment as a victory for voter representation in Virginia. However, There are some people who support redistricting reform, but say the amendment doesn't go far enough. In fact, they say it's so watered down that it's a disadvantage to the future of equal voting rights. Bold Dominion producer Kim Salak spoke with Mark Levine. He's a member of the Virginia House of Delegates representing parts of Northern Virginia. Last year, Levine campaigned against the amendment's passing, arguing that the bill actually enables future gerrymandering for incumbent and partisan reasons.
2: Our episode is focusing on the amendment process and looking specifically at this redistricting amendment. So, walk me through the process. What are the steps to actually making an amendment happen in Virginia?
1: So, the Virginia Constitution uh, requires that any uh, proposal to amend the Constitution must pass both the Virginia House and the Virginia Senate. Then, there must be an election held in between of the House of Delegates. And then, it must pass the House and the Senate again in identical form. And then, it must go to the people. Uh, who vote for it in the next uh, general election, and then it becomes part of the Constitution.
2: As a legislator, what language was important to include in an amendment like this that addresses
1: redistricting? I believe that the best redistricting process is one that is nonpartisan, and that is controlled by citizens rather than legislators. The first main problem with gerrymandering is that it favors one political party over another, and that's a serious problem. Uh, and um, in the United States of America, while both parties do it, Republicans uh, way out gerrymander Democrat. Many, many, many states have probably a couple dozen extra representatives they shouldn't have. The United States Supreme Court has found that to be perfectly legal. I strongly disagree with them. I think that's a violation of one person, one vote and equal protection under the law, under the 14th Amendment. But I'm not on the Supreme Court, and that's what they ruled. Another problem we want to stop is racial gerrymandering. Racial gerrymandering is a violation of the equal, uh, not just Equal Protection Clause, but also the Voting Rights Act. It's basically a way to pack minorities, tends to be African-Americans, but it can be used for other minorities, uh, in a very tight in a district. And that way they get one representative, but the surrounding districts have less minority population. Again, it's complicated. Then the other gerrymandering that's a problem is not political or racial, but incumbent protection gerrymandering. And that's when legislators basically protect their own seats. Uh, the classic example of that is New Jersey. Uh, they passed a law that has equal numbers of Republicans and Democrats. And so basically, the Democrats protect their seats, Republicans protect their seats, and they draw the lines uh, to help incumbents win.
2: This amendment originally did not look like what it was when it, in its final form. So what did the amendment look like when it started out?
1: George Barker had a proposal that was decent on the political gerrymandering front, but bad on the incumbent gerrymandering front. His proposal, which is the heart of what became this Amendment 1, started with this idea of um, eight delegates and senators appointed by the the four leaders, Republican and Democratic, of each chamber, and the eight citizens. That's what became the final bill. That started with George Barker's original proposal. Um, So that proposal does get rid of a lot of political gerrymandering because you have equal sides represented. I would argue it's imperfect, though, because Virginia, I would argue, is not a 50-50 state, 50-50 commonwealth. Um, If we were a 50-50 commonwealth, that would be perfectly politically fair. Um, That proposal passed the Senate, and then it came to conference with Mark Cole's original proposal. And at the very last minute, literally about... 15, 20 minutes before we were to vote on it, out came something from the conference committee. Uh, And this is the idea that if if only two delegates or senators object, it goes to the Virginia Supreme Court who could just draw the lines and act like a legislature and get rid of 400 years of separation of powers and just let the court draw the lines. And then if there's a problem, the same court that draws the lines would rule over whether they're fair or not, which to me seems a real problem with our normal checks and balances system. That was thrown in at the last minute, and we were all given about 20 minutes to vote on it. So many of us did vote for it um, and then discovered its flaws more and more as things went on. But that's that's the heart of how it it got passed.
2: Uh, Before the vote that was put up to citizens, several Arlington delegates, including yourself, released a joint statement in opposition to the proposal. So why was it important for you to do so?
1: My feeling was the public should know what they're voting on. Most voters are not going to examine a proposition for an hour. You'll be lucky if you get 10 minutes. I would know because I was at the polls talking to people. Uh, and frankly, I think the description of the amendment on the ballot was not the correct description. I tried to amend that description. The way to know it was on the ballot is to read the whole amendment, understand it, use the legal knowledge. I think that's a lot to ask of voters when this isn't their field. The amendment one was sold, is this prohibits gerrymandering? Well, not at all. It actually encourages gerrymandering. It encourages incumbent protection gerrymandering by its very nature. All the politicians appoint all the members, directly or indirectly. And it encourages political gerrymandering because it gives Republicans a finger on the scale. They can say, aha, if we don't feel that it favors us, we'll just go to the Republican dominated Supreme Court and they can draw it based on however they want. And that was kind of hidden in there. And if if it wasn't exposed, People would think, oh, this is a reform. And my view is you shouldn't change the Constitution to put in something that you know from the get-go is flawed. So what's interesting is both supporters and opponents of Amendment 1 agreed that what we were putting in the Constitution was seriously flawed. Where we disagreed on was whether the status quo was better than this seriously flawed proposal. Uh, I will say this. The other thing that is extremely flawed and that I put it out on the record was extremely flawed – is the time frame, According to the Virginia Constitution, Article Two, Section 6, we are required by the Virginia Constitution to have new districts in the House of Delegates in time for the November 2021 House elections. Um, the U.S. Constitution requires the same thing, by the way. It says you must redistrict every 10 years. And we last redistricted in 2011. Uh, we had census data even later than usual this year because the Trump administration messed up the census, but also COVID messed up the census and made the process really slow. So we're not getting our census data until mid-August. Well, with all the timelines in the amendment, we can't have elections in November 2021 under the new districts. But there's a problem. The Constitution requires it. It's not a question of ambiguity. Article 2, Section 6 says, we must run in new districts in November 2021. But we're not doing it but the Constitution says we're required to do it. So our entire House of Delegates elections are unconstitutional. They're illegal. They violate the Constitution. It's very important, and the founders understood, that you've got to redistrict on a periodic basis so that you have true one person, one vote representative government. And they said, don't go longer than 10 years. Well, we are going longer than 10 years. We're going at least 11, maybe 12 years, so we're violating the U.S. Constitution as well as the Virginia Constitution, all because of this flawed amendment that, again, I don't think we should have passed in the first place.
2: So speaking of the amendment, we do have a new redistricting commission doing the work this year. So how do you think that process has been going?
1: I can, I can quibble about some things on the edges, but they really haven't done anything that important yet. One is they included incumbent addresses to be considered. Well, there's no provision in the law that we even look at incumbent addresses. Yeah, we incumbents like it because, yeah, you'll protect our seats. I get why politicians want to protect their seats. The other thing they did is they just ruled to have partisan lawyers uh, and no nonpartisan lawyers. So if they're actively taking this incumbent protection bipartisan way of looking at it rather than nonpartisan way of looking at it, which again is what you would expect from the New Jersey model rather than, say, the Iowa or California model. Uh, so, those two tea leaves don't look good. But ultimately, the question is what tea will be made. We're going to know that in September. And, um, you know, I'm still hoping it works. But I do fear that it's designed for incumbent protection and it's designed with a Republican thumb on the scale because of the Supreme Court um, backstop. And uh, But we'll see what happens. I I don't think the commission has done enough things for me to really come down hard on them and criticize them. I want to give them hope. I want to encourage them to do the right thing. Uh, The fact that they included incumbent addresses or partisan lawyers, again, are quibbles that I disagree with, but I I would agree that if they come up with great maps at the end of the day, no, no one could be more pleased than me.
2: What would maps that would be fair look like, in your opinion?
1: On average, I think the legislature should reflect the public they represent, reflect them politically, reflect them geographically, reflect them um, ethnically, reflect them in um, the range of opinions. Uh, And there's never going to be a perfect system, but what you don't want is drawing lines purposely to aid one political party or another, which is the main thing I've been fighting against all along in this process.
2: Moving forward, how can Virginia make the redistricting process better?
1: So I think... Number one, let's make this commission hold them to their charge. Look at the maps. Stare at them carefully. Go to the experts and let them give you the political breakdown of the maps, which I'm sure VPAP will do. They're really good bean counters there. Uh, Make sure that minorities have a proper representation. Make sure the communities of interest aren't split. The public's going to have to police the commission because no one else really can uh, at this point. Legislature can't. Courts can't. Governor can't. So it's really only the public is left to police them. And I really think that after initial maps are drawn is where we really have to gear up. And I really hope they'll have hearings after initial maps are drawn. Because before maps are drawn, you can just kind of say, hey, be fair. But you don't really care until suddenly, you know, your street is split down the middle and your neighbor's in a different uh, district from you. Uh, that's, that's when you suddenly get angry and get upset. So I th- particularly after maps are drawn, protect your community um protect your locality where you live protect your ethnic uh, group make sure that language minorities have a say make sure that uh you know ethnic minorities of any kind get get a proper representation and absolutely protect your political community make sure that the the lines drawn reflect Virginia's politics as well and if they don't go forth and complain now at the end of the day Uh, I fear that given the fact that any two delegates or senators can veto the whole commission, if we push too hard to have fair maps, let's say, I'm a Democrat, I admit that, but let's say it's 52-48 or 53-47 Democrats and and the Republicans say, no, we want 50-50, even though Virginia leans blue, they'll say, all right, we're taking our ball, we're going home, we're going to throw the whole thing to the Virginia Supreme Court, which we all know has a conservative bias. And um, if you don't, If you don't uh, tilt the maps to the Republican Party, we'll just let the Supreme Court decide. And that would be catastrophic because it would give us 10 years of flawed maps uh, based on a flawed amendment. And that's my biggest fear.
0: Mark Levine is a member of the Virginia House of Delegates who represents Alexandria, Arlington and Fairfax County. Thanks to him and also Brian Cannon for joining us this week. My name's Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Big thanks, as always, to our producers here at the show. Kim Salek conducted the interviews this week, and Paige Waterhouse was our editor and mixdown artist. You can find us online at bolddominion.org. Hey, and don't forget to subscribe. It's just a click away.